Thank you, David. Thank you, Lance. Uh, I have a plea from our head deacon. <clears throat> if we could squeeze in just a little bit. We're only about three-quarters full, and there are people coming in, and we're kind of spread out, as Adventists tend to do. But uh, squeeze in and come forward. So, My spray zone is limited. Pastor Walt puts his spray zone Mine's pretty limited. I stay back here, so you know. Before we step into what I had a professor who calls this God's horror show. Okay, uh, what's the number one rule when reading Revelation? It's about Jesus. That's right. What's apocalypse mean? Re- revealing to pull the cover off to take a look at. Jesus, to see the revealing that he has in mind for us. I'm going to skip the seven churches. I'm not going to skip them. I'm going to put them off until the end because I kind of got something going that I hope uh, completely works out. We're going to conclude with the seven churches. But if you look at uh, after the vision that we saw last week and then the seven churches, then we come to this one, uh, the introduction to the seven seals. Of course, seven seals has four horses and four horsemen in it. Um, you know, one thing that I wish about the four horsemen, the one thing that I wish is that one of those horses was Seabiscuit. Because <laughs> it would be a whole lot more fun to talk about than uh, what we see. And if you remember, if you, I hate to mention a movie, but if you remember the movie, I, it, what, it, there are three subjects that you, you probably, unless you're ready, unless you want to camp out, settle in, settle down, get some food and some drinks, and talk to me about, okay, Seabiscuit is one of those subjects. Okay, I spent 10 years in Willits, and I was on the board of Howard Hospital. And if you don't know the connection between Howard Hospital and Willits and Seabiscuit, ask me. But get your food first, okay? Baseball and NASA, those are the other two things that you don't want to talk to me about unless you got some food and some, unless you got some sustenance, because it's going to be a while, okay? But there's a line in Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit heads this race with the greatest racehorse alive at the time, which was War Admiral. And the owner of War Admiral uh, has a line in the movie because just before the match race, Seabiscuit lost his jockey. He got in an accident and they got another one. And everybody was making a big deal about the replacement jockey because the replacement jockey was George Wolfe, who was the greatest jockey in the world. And the owner of War Admiral says, I don't care if they get the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Doesn't matter who the passenger is. War Admiral's a real racehorse. The four horsemen of the what? Of the apocalypse. Again, when the world thinks of apocalypse, what do they think of? They think of the end, and they associate these guys with them. The four horsemen of the end is what they think they're saying, but really what they are is four horsemen of what? Of the revealing of Jesus Christ. That's right. So let's not get tripped up. We're not talking about now. This revealing of Jesus is the one who is to come, which means it's in the future, which means we've got to go through the end to get there. You get it? But ultimately, the book of Revelation is about who? It's about Jesus and the one who is to come. Unfortunately, one of the four horsemen isn't Seabiscuit. But I got a better one. I got a better one. And that'll be this first horse that we'll talk about. But we need to set up 
Revelation 6 and the six seals, seven seals. We need to we need to set it up a little bit. We need to go to chapter five first. After the vision of the seven churches, after Jesus assures the history of his people, the history of the Christian church from his uh, ascension all the way until when he comes again, he assures the church that he's walking with them. And that's all we'll say about the seven churches until a couple of weeks. We'll go ahead and conclude with them because seven churches is all about us. But anyway, um, after that, he's taken immediately to heaven. John is shown and taken immediately to heaven. And this is what he sees when he gets there. He sees a throne and upon the throne is 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 uh, around the throne. He didn't actually talk about who's sitting on the throne. But if it's a throne in heaven, we assume it's who? We assume it's God. OK, and and he talks about what he sees and he says before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the thorn, throne, four living creatures full of eyes front and behind. And again, we begin to dig into symbolic language. OK, this is very symbolic. If they're if they have eyes in front and behind them, what is he saying about them? What do they know? They know all. OK, they know everything they can see in every direction. They see the past. They see the future, actually the past and the future. Remember, they see it all. OK, so whoever these creatures are, uh, they know a heck of a lot. OK, they know a lot. And the first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf or some of your versions will say ox. And the third creature had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying what? Like a flying eagle. More actually closely to the language is that it might be a vulture or a condor. It's a, it's, it's a bird that, that, what do they call them? Feasts on carrion. That's right. That's right. It's one of those. But we've always translated eagle, which eagles do, by the way. Eagles don't always kill. They also pick, right? Pick over that which has already died. So it's quite a scene. Now, the creatures, we know what they look like, but they only have one job description. This is the only thing they do. Four living creatures, each one of them having six wings full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say what? Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, is, and is to come. Again, we come back to our theme. What is the revelation of Jesus that we need? The one who is. And is to come. Actually, we have a bit of a revelation. If you want to trust John, I'll trust John. Will you trust John? That he's revealed to us the one who is. We've seen him. He walks amongst the lampstands. We've heard him. He has a voice like the trumpet. Okay, we're about to see him again. He's going to be revealed. But I'll trust John in revealing us to the one who is. Right? But who really needs to be revealed is the one who is to is to come. That's the revelation that revelation is about. Okay. So that's their one job. Notice they don't just worship. They seem to control worship. When they say it, things happen. There are 24 elders around this throne. There are seven spirits of God. There's all kinds. And when these, when these creatures say what they say, the 24 elders bow down and, you know, things happen. And they don't seem to just uh, be worshiping. They seem to control worship or they seem to be in charge or at least they instigate it, if you will, with those words right there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was. Who is and is to come. Amen. Amen. 
So God is holding a book in this throne. The one who's sitting on the throne has a book in his hand. The right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So he's holding this book, if you will. And he asks all of the creatures in heaven, which means he's asking everybody. He's asking everybody who's there, who can open the book? And what does the answer come back as? No one can. John begins to weep, as a matter of fact. John begins to weep. Now, you have to, we could spend a lot of time on what this book is or what it is. All I know, all we know about this book right now is that what it looks like, that it's sealed with seven seals. But the most important thing is who's holding it. Who's ever sitting on the throne. Now, you have to get in an ancient mindset that whatever's written, whatever's written in a book is what is to be. You remember in the Ten Commandments? Pharaoh puts out a commandment and demands that it first be what? That it first be written. In an ancient mind, once it was written, now it's going to happen. So let it be written, so it shall be done. Right? So in an ancient mind, once it's written down. See, so if the one who's sitting on the throne of all heaven is holding this book, what is the implication about this book? I'm not sure what it is. And you can speculate all day as to what's inside. But since God is holding it, he's actually, the way that John sees it, is that he's holding the unfolding of the entire history of the universe. And the problem is, is that it's all what? It's all sealed up. Unless this book opens, nothing's going to happen. So John begins to what? John begins to weep because there is no one worthy. John's not about to step up and take it and try to break the seals. Notice the four creatures don't volunteer. The 24 elders don't volunteer. None of the angels, not even one of the spirits of God stands up and says, I'll open it. No one volunteers. So John begins to weep. He begins to weep. But then something happens. One of the elders says to me, don't weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Wow. See who? The lion of the tribe of Judah. He has what? He has conquered. He has conquered. He can open the scroll and the seven seals. And I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a what? A lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Okay. One thing, one thing to get right across the bat for you is that you do understand Revelation is about 99% symbolic. Right? I, what I don't understand is why do we spend so much time looking for literal meanings in a book that is completely, absolutely filled with symbolism? And you'll notice that nothing is exact and nothing is quite what it says it is. We, we look for literal meanings when actually that isn't the point of the book is finding a literal meaning. Literally, he says, the, the elder says, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And when John turns, does he see a lion? He sees a what? But that's not what the elder said. You see what I'm saying? So right off the bat. I don't understand why we all of a sudden are looking for literal translations or literal interpretations in a book this symbolic when even the symbolism itself tells you that it's symbolic. 
Don't worry. When John wants you to take something literally, he'll tell you. He gives you every indication. And you know how much he tells you to take literally? About that much. What he wants you to take seriously and literally, he's already told you. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Did I step on some toes? It looks like it did because you guys got awfully quiet. Because I at least had a couple of amens every time I said the revelation of Jesus Christ last week. Now I'm getting none. So. So whoever this one who has conquered, this lion of Judah, this lamb standing there, he's he's the one. Okay, this lamb standing, if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So now there are the seven spirits of God. He said the seven spirits of God were around the throne. Well, guess what? The seven spirits of God are who? They're this lamb. So the the seven is a perfect number. It's God's number. It's a complete number. Whenever it says seven in Revelation, it's complete. It's a complete history. It's, It's a complete genealogy. It's a complete something. Okay. So God in all complete, all seven spirits of him are all wrapped up in this lamb. Who's the only one this lamb can be? Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You with me? So he's standing there. He's been declared worthy. He and, and, and notice where he's standing. Where is he standing right now? He's standing amongst the, the elders. He's standing there between the throne and the four living creatures. He's standing beside the throne, if you will. Notice where he's standing. He's at the right hand of God. Everywhere in the New Testament, When they describe where Jesus is right now, they all say the same thing. Right now, he's at the right hand of God, standing there with the Father. Okay? Standing there with the Father. Most dramatic is when Stephen sees him. Because everyone else says sitting. In fact, when Paul sees him, Paul says that he's sitting. Okay? When Stephen sees him, he's standing. And here, he's standing. You know what standing is the posture of in ancient times? Judgment. When the judge pronounced sentence, he stood up. That's what made it so dramatic when Stephen sees him. Jesus pronouncing judgment on what's happening right here. Okay. And now he's doing so. Now Jesus is standing at this particular time. Okay. He takes the scroll. And I like to say, I love to be able to say this. When he takes the scroll... All heaven breaks loose. Okay. He came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And all heaven takes loose. They bust forth. There are, there are instruments that are happening now. There are all kinds of things going on. Bowls of incense. Myriads and myriads. A myriad is 10,000, by the way. So 10,000s of 10,000s of angels all break forth. And they all sing a song. They sing a new song. They say, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from tribe, every nation and tongue and people and and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Wow. Him taking that book, something happened. All heaven broke loose. And the chapter ends this way. And the four living creatures keep saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and they what? 
and they worshipped. What did we just witness? Sounded an awful lot like a coronation. See, the elders and everyone else are now worshipping the Lamb the same way they were worshipping the throne when the vision opened. Who was sitting on the throne? We assume that God is sitting on the throne. Now the Lamb has the book. And they're all worshipping who? They're worshipping Him. We just witnessed Jesus' coronation as King of this universe. So, if you want to get literal, we just figured out the time, at least the beginning of the opening of the seals. It begins when? It began when Jesus went back to heaven. You now have the starting date, if you want to be literal. By the way, that's about as literal as it's going to get. That's about all we know. Actually, no, we know a whole lot more than this. But we have the starting date, if that's what you're looking for. But more importantly, as soon as Jesus gets back to the throne and he takes hold of this book, he now is the one that everyone is worshiping. We just saw a coronation of the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. John just witnessed it. John just witnessed it. Isn't it any wonder that after witnessing this, that about 20 years later, he opens his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That whole beautiful discourse, because he saw this. He witnessed this. It blows me away. It absolutely blows me away. John's going to be, have, you know, going to see me on his call sheet a lot in the kingdom. Webster's here again? God. I spent all day with him yesterday. What's he want to know now? So, when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with the voice of thunder, Come. So, he breaks the seal. It elicits a comment from who? One of the four living creatures. doesn't tell us who, but he says one of the four living creatures. Whoever he is, he has a voice of thunder. So when the seal is broken, one of the creatures busts forth with a comment or, or kind of the beginning of whatever is going to happen when the seal is broken. Okay? And I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to what? He went out conquering and to conquer. Okay? Conquering and to conquer. The seal is broken. And one of the creatures gives a command, and that's what's going to happen with all four of these creatures, okay? And all four of these first four seals. So it, it, it's kind of like they were in charge before, and now they seem to be in charge of whatever the vision is. So, so it is interesting to remember this, okay? Is that whatever is happening in heaven, it certainly affects what's going on in earth, Right? These four creatures, this worship and everything, it certainly affects what's happening down here. Because when these seals get broken, it's going to begin to open up our history, to open up Earth's history and release, you know, whatever era or whatever plague or or, or whatever. So certainly things that happen in heaven happen here. But what is God really trying to tell you and me who have to live through the breaking of these seals? That whatever happens here is his ultimate concern of him in heaven. You see what I'm saying? Because when the seal is broken, whatever happens, happens here. And it's happening in heaven. God is telling you and me, this is of my ultimate concern. I've got nothing else to do right now. 
at this point, at this time in history, this is it. All heaven is focused on you and me. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. First seal, this white horse and this rider. I told you there was a better horse than Seabiscuit in this. This is him, and this is why. Okay? The creatures have different features, a lion, an ox, an eagle, and a man. Which one has a voice like thunder? The lion. It has to be the lion, the one that says, come. Okay? So it has something to do with the lion. What do we already know about the lion? The angel already said, look, the lion of who? The Lion of Judah. He could have been referring. I didn't say that there were two lions at that throne. But he could have been. He possibly, probably was referring to this lion. So this first, this first creature has to be the lion. Well, let's say 99% sure. And he sends out this white horse. The rider is carrying a bow. He has a crown on his head. And he rides out to be a conqueror. Something interesting, though. He conquers. He has a bow, but he's got no what? He's got no arrows. So the conquering must be something other than what we think conquering is. And it is. It's so cool. It's so fascinating. How is he going to conquer without offensive weapons? Doesn't seem to concern him. Okay, it doesn't seem to concern him because on his head is a crown of victory. It's a Stephanos crown. It's not a Diademos crown. It's not a crown of rulership. It's a crown of victory. Guess what? The reason he's got no arrows is that he's already won. Amen. And also, also, it's not the kind of war that you and I think about. He doesn't need offensive weapons in this because it's how he fights. Only Jesus wears this crown, by the way. It's a Stephanos crown. It's a laurel wreath that goes around. Up until about the 1940s, every gold medalist in the Olympics wore one of those. They gave you the gold medal and they put that laurel wreath on. When a Roman general came back from conquering, okay, that's what he wore. He's not going to put the crown on. He's, he's, he's not emperor now. He just won this battle. And the emperor is acknowledging it by giving him this victorious crown. That's what this guy is wearing. So obviously he's already won a victory. It's not a military victory. He triumphed by one way. If I go into battle with a bow and no arrows, am I going to win? No, I'm going to lose. This writer conquered by what? He conquered by losing. Because if this writer is who all of the symbolism says he is, who is he, by the way? He's Jesus. Did Jesus win with offensive weapons? Well, love probably is the most offensive, defensive weapon there is. But it isn't what we think about when we think about conquering. Jesus won by losing, didn't he? Because he died. The object of earthly warfare is you don't die. Last one standing, what? Wins. Not in this case. Not in this case. Jesus won by what? He won by dying. And he already has the victory. He won by losing, by giving his own life. Most important here, though, is that if this is a history of earth, and it seems to be because that's what the seven churches were, the seven churches were a history of the church on earth, and then the seals is this is living a history maybe either outside the church. I still think the seals affect God's people and God's people alone because they're the ones that understand who this writer is. They understand this. 
Somebody who doesn't get this, somebody who doesn't hasn't met Jesus, somebody who doesn't understand this, looks upon this and says, that's ridiculous. He can't win a war without any arrows. Remember what Paul said, the world says about the cross? It's foolishness. It was a waste of time. It was a waste of resources. He could have done so much more had he just continued to preach and to heal. But no, he went to the cross. So what's most important is that the action in this, he rides out conquering and to conquer. It is the most continuing action that the language can give you. English falls way, way short and Greek even falls short of this. When he says conquering, it's present, it's active. Okay, it's a present active form, conquering. Okay, and then conquer is aorist, finished, done, action. So he's conquering and he's finished. Which means he is going to conquer until there is no one and nothing left to conquer. You with me? That means when he gets to the seventh seal. By the way, when the seventh seal opens, the seventh seal is the bringing of the second coming. Okay? Jesus comes on a what? On a white horse with a robe on that says, King of kings and Lord of lords written on his thighs. So even at the beginning of the history, even at the beginning of this seal, he rides out. He walked amongst the churches. He said through the entire history of the church, I will be here. I will be here. Lo, I am with you always. And now when he begins to look at the history and this horrible history that begins to unfold on this earth, he says, I will be there. I will still be conquering. I ride out to conquer and have conquered. He is going to go until there is no more. By the way, seven, perfect number. However long it takes. With me? So this first horse is the most important. This first horse is way better than Seabiscuit. This first horse says that no matter what happens, no matter what happens from here on out, no matter what happens with my three buddies, because they're not as nice, they got some things not quite as nice as this, the, ride ho- the white horse and his rider is still conquering. He goes out before, before these guys even get on their horse and show up. All right? So really, we're back to just what we said last week. Rule number one. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's this vision really about? This vision really is about Jesus. This vision really is to assure you and me that no matter how bad it gets, no matter what happens with the breaking of these seals, He has already conquered and He is with us and He has got this. Amen? But we'll go ahead and look at the others. Okay, we'll go ahead and look at the others. Breaks the second seal. Heard the second living creature say, come, and another horse, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth. And that men would what? Would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. This next one happens is is that now some sort of death begins to happen. Not just death, but what? Murder, that men slay one another. So this first horse goes riding out and to conquer. By the way, I, 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 I completely missed it. I, I stepped right over it. What kind of war does Jesus wage on this horse? What kind of war does he wage on this planet? What is his weapon? What does he do? He has a sword. 
It's the everlasting gospel. He preaches the gospel. He lives the gospel. He has his church go out and preach it now. Go, go, he says. Teach it all. So the gospel begins to spread out. The gospel begins to go forth. What happened to the first people that began to preach the gospel? What happened to them? They were all what? They were all murdered. They were martyred. The gospel begins to be preached. Then they begin to become persecuted. Okay, all completely martyred. All martyred. The great sword is not a military sword. This is how I know that this is not a war. It's not a military war. It's a dagger. Okay? It's, it's, it's a small sword. It's one that would be used to sacrifice an animal. With me? So there's a priestly kind of uh, uh, tone to this, if you will. Men are slaying one another, but they're not using military swords. They're using daggers. They're using these sacrificial ones, which means martyrdom. Those who give their lives. And that's what happens when the gospel gets preached. People begin to pay for it with their lives. When you cast, when you put love on a world that no longer loves, love always gets it in the teeth. Love always looks like it's losing. Love always has to pay. And by the way, love is willing to pay the ultimate prize. So it's animal sacrifices. So what creature must have sent this one out? The only one that's a sacrificial animal, the ox or the calf. Both of them could be used. Both of them could be used in sacrifices. So the people of the gospel will pay for their lives. It happened in the apostolic era. Where is John when he gets this, by the way? He's on Patmos on the third or fourth attempt to try to martyr him by three different emperors. And it hasn't worked yet. He's the only one left alive. He's either seen or heard about every one of his friends who have lost their lives. Crucified, died in prison. You see what I'm saying? So John knows very well who this is. John knows very well what is happening here. And it's the language. It's the language. By the way, who's doing the persecuting? Who did the persecuting in the uh, apostolic era and then in the dark ages? Who was it that was doing the persecuting? The church. The church. Jesus said, they'll make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you. To think that he is offering service to who? He's doing God a favor by killing the saints. Everyone in the beast, everyone in the beast felt that they were serving God by slaying the heretics. You still with me or is this just getting too icky? But it immediately happened, didn't it? Immediately happened right off the bat. History bears it out, and it will continue to bear it out. It will continue to bear it out. They think they're doing God a favor. Thirty Years' War, by the way, the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century halved the population of Europe. Halved it. I heard somebody say, imagine Rwanda every year for 30 years. Two great plagues didn't even come close to killing that many people. But this one religious war 
Protestants against Catholics. Catholics against Protestants. Reformation. Counter-reformation. That's why the color of this horse is what? It's red. It's red with the blood of its martyrs. You with me? I almost said, any questions? We don't have time. Okay. We don't have time. But it's something we have to begin to discuss, by the way, and that's why I wanted to save the seven churches till last. How does the church win its victory? Not by offending. Not by wounding. Not by killing. It never wins that way. If we do, we take part in this. So it's something we need to begin to discuss that we need to talk about. So anyway, let's move on. He broke the third seal. I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like the voice, like a voice in the center of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So the next horse is black. Ink is actually the word for it. He's ink. He's ink colored. And back then there was only one color of ink, black. They either used uh, soot from the lamps, but it was black. Okay, And that's what color this horse is. Okay, It's announcing a famine. By the way, that's a voice in the marketplace. You know, you, you, you walk in the open market and you have people yelling out, you know, what they've got. This is what it is. It's a voice in the marketplace. The reason they're announcing a famine is because he's saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and a denarius is a day's wage. One serving of wheat's not going to feed me or my family, but it's going to take a day's wage to buy it. So he's announcing a what? He's announcing a famine. Barley's cheaper. You can get it for three. So you're going to buy that. But that still isn't going to feed my family a five. So this is an announcement of a famine. What's interesting, though, is is that the oil and the wine are what? They're good. Plenty of oil, plenty of wine. That's a very interesting famine. So I'm sorry to step on your toes if you wanted to be literal and you want to look for a great famine that happened. By the way, there are so many famines, you won't be able to attach this meaning to any of them. Okay, but this can't be a literal famine because you've got all the oil and the wine that they want. So what could it be a famine of? Symbolic language. What could it be a famine of? How about the word? Amos, by the way, pre-exilic prophet, okay, letter to the exiles, remember? Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for what? Not a famine for bread. By the way, that's what what is missing. The wheat and the barley are, are too expensive. Can't feed my family. So not a famine for bread, but a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the word of the Lord. The persecutions happen. The martyrdoms begin to happen. The people that feel they're doing God a favor are killing people, which means there's a famine of the word. Now, it can't be a literal famine of the word, and especially not today, right? The Bible is more available now than it ever was. But get this, the Bible on paper is more available than it ever was. These people are carrying out these martyrdoms. The church is carrying out these martyrdoms. And what are they using as their authority? The Bible. So the next is a famine, not of the literal word, not of bread, and not of the literal word, 
but of the spirit intended behind it. In other words, they're worshiping the words on the page and they've completely missed the Christ that the words are supposed to reveal. Know anybody who worships their Bible and not the God in it? How many here have worshipped their Bible before? I probably did it this week. And a pretty good indication, pretty good indication is that if you see in those words a reason to hate, a reason to kill, a reason to carry out vengeance, and think that you're doing God a favor, then you're suffering a famine of the word, and we all are. Just something to think about. Not a famine for bread or of thirst, but rather hearing the words of God. What's the easiest thing to do in the church? What's the easiest thing that we do? Go back to the letter of the law because it's easier to do. Now, you may say, all right, no, it's, it's not. Man, look at the Pharisees. That was hard. Okay? That was hard to be in your garden down on your knees and figuring out what t- a tenth of your cumin yield is. Okay? No, it's easy compared to love thy neighbor as thyself. It's even easier compared to don't just love your neighbor, but love your enemies. I told our class last week, I, you know, I'd, I'd rather just quit eating cheese, you know, I mean, than to love my enemies. When it gets too hard, what we automatically do is go back to the letter of the law. And by the way, the letter does nothing but condemn condemns us, and that's what this famine is about. The church is completely uh, starving for the word. They may have the Bible, they may have the words, we may have it on our pages and in our tablets. Like I said, now it's more readily available than ever. i got 150 Bibles in here. There. Which still just blows me away. And yet I still complain when it doesn't work right. But there's 150 Bibles in there. But it's, that's not the famine that he's talking about. It's not a literal famine of bread. It's not a literal famine of having the Bible themselves. I believe that in the end, they're not going to take our Bibles away. They're just going to make it meaningless. You know what I'm saying? The beast just makes it meaningless. He doesn't take it away from you. Why take away the letter that's allowing them to carry out what he wants them to carry out? And that is to kill whoever loves. And that is to love up to a point. See what I'm saying? It just renders it meaningless. That's the famine the church is suffering from. So, after a famine, what happens after a famine? People what? If they don't eat, drink for a while, what happens? They die, okay? When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature call out, Come. By the way, we've had the ox, we've had the man... And we've had the uh, lion. So who's the fourth living creature that's left? Is the eagle. Okay. Again, a bird of, uh, of prey. All right. You could look at it that way, a bird of prey. Eagle eats, either kills things that it, that it has to eat or it eats things that are already dead. Okay. So it does make sense. So open the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature call out, come. And I looked and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed with him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. So what happens after a famine? What follows a famine? Death. By the way, it's a pale green horse. The Greek word is chloros. You ever seen chlorine gas? 
I hope you don't see it real close. I hope you see it contained inside. But it is an ugly, sickly green. In liquid form, I can't tell you what the green is. If anybody has ever seen bile. Yummy. What'd you have for breakfast? That's the green that it is. If somebody is that color, you might go, you might be a tad ill. You know that? I think you might want to have that looked at. Okay. If anybody's ever this color. So it's death. So if it wasn't a literal famine, maybe this isn't a literal death. And we're trying to attach all kinds of things. Well, what's a fourth of the earth? What's a fourth of the earth? A fourth of the population are all going to be killed. They're all going to be killed by plague and pestilence and everything else. Well, if the famine that came before this was a spiritual famine, then maybe the real problem here is what? Is a spiritual death. Of people that have the word, but they don't have the spirit of the word. Which, to tell you the truth, by the time you get to Laodicea, that's the church that you got. I am rich and have need of nothing. You have a church that knows its word, but fails to live out its what? To live out its law. Laodicea is an apathetic church. And this is the death that it's brought about. You get what I'm saying? This is what happens. This is why the seals are not that complicated. It just takes a little unpacking. It takes an open mind. It takes a little unpacking. It takes, it takes getting over the knee-jerk uh, reaction of saying, well, famine, you know, man, literal, let's, look at, let's look for literal famines. Let's go all the way up to, you know, all the way to Ethiopia just a few years ago. Let's, you know, no. It takes getting past that. And remember, this book is steeped in the scriptures itself. It'll tell you what it means, providing that you find what it's alluding to. That's what's real important. Is what did John hear when he heard these words? I think John found Amos. I think John knew the words of Amos. John was, was descended from the people that came out of exile. He understands this language. And all it's telling us is just what we were told in the garden. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When love is absent from my creation, when love is absent from what I have called this creation to be, the inevitable thing to happen is what? Is death. And there's nothing worse for a church than to be dead. And how do I know that it's love that it's missing from the church? See, I keep alluding back to the churches. Maybe we should have just went ahead and did the churches. The first church loses its first love, Ephesus. To me, the seven churches is all about the church trying to exist without love, constantly going back to the word, constantly going back to the letter of the law and trying to live it out and always falling short. Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, always falling short until finally you get to Laodicea and now they don't care about anything anymore at all. And remember one of the signs, one of the, to me, the most telling sign before the second coming, Jesus said, and the love of many, the love of most will wax cold. They will be apathetic. Love will not exist. And when it doesn't exist anymore and all you have is the letter, all we're left with is the law. What happens to the church? We take part in the beast. 
The church of the Lamb that was slain was about a love that knows no bounds and no ends and, and, and no condition. The church of the beast loves up to a point, which means he doesn't love at all. So are you with me? Real quick. March 7th, 1965. A group of mostly young black people gather in a church inside Selma, Alabama. About 600 of them and they begin to pray. Because they're about to undertake a march. They're going to march from Selma to Montgomery. They sat and they prayed. And while they were praying, a group of deputy sheriffs led by Jimmy Lee Jackson, all gather at the Edmund Pettus Memorial Bridge outside of Selma. It's what you, you do. It's the bridge that you leave when you when you leave Selma. And as they were walking out, as they, as these 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 people were done with their prayer and they began to march towards the bridge, when they got to the bridge, Sheriff Jackson told all of his deputies to unleash the dogs. And they all attacked these young black people. They were only marching for the right that the Constitution gave them, and that was to vote. Because the laws in the South wouldn't allow them to vote, wouldn't allow them even to register. They wanted to do this one march. Well, there was media attention by 1965 to the Civil Rights Movement. There was media attention. And there happened to be at least, probably all three, but I know that at least a CBS news crew was there filming the whole thing. And there was a decision made by CBS to cut away from its Sunday afternoon programming and cut to the march from Selma to Montgomery to see this, this Holocaust. And the show that they cut away from was Judgment at Nuremberg. And what happened was, was that because those young people had decided to live out love and not live out violence, and not take out the vengeance that they probably more than any other people in our history has a reason to have and to feel. That most of white America who didn't know anything of what was going on, all of a sudden cuts away from the trial of the Nazis that, that brought about the Holocaust. And then it cuts to these scenes of these young people in Alabama. And what happened was a shift in consciousness in most of white America that day. Because what they saw in their own country were things of what they were watching being dramatized in Germany in the 1930s. 35 days later, President Johnson signed this, the Civil Rights Voting Act of 1965. Dr. King said before that, all we have is our bodies. When people begin to recognize love in action, it may not change people. That's not what it's supposed to do. It's not supposed to automatically change people. It gives people the best opportunity to change their hearts. And the greatest thing about this is that whatever this death, this spiritual death, this physical death, however you want to translate it, that because of the guy on the right horse, on the white horse, because he rides conquering and to conquer, that there will even be a death of death at the end of all of this. And the only reason that death goes away from the scene is because love comes back as the ruling force of all the universe.
and where we get to spend eternity loving God and loving each other like ourselves. So breaking up the seals, open the seals, is not that complicated. It's history, it's present, and by the way, it is to come. But remember who's on the white horse. Remember who's on the white horse. And praise God that he is with us and that he's got this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for gathering us together today. We thank you that we witnessed Jesus' coronation in, in the kingdom, that you coronated him, that you made him king, and that you gave him all rule and authority that he gave to us. And, Lord, here we are just... Uh, just just talking and just singing and just preaching and, and trying to love our neighbors ourselves and forgive us, Lord, of how far short we fall. But we just ask that uh, we thank you that we just are able to see him riding that horse and walking amongst our lampstand, no matter how dim it may get. I just ask that you be with us, Lord, as a church, as a family, and that we go out and that we preach and that we proclaim, and that we love as you have loved us. But thank you that we can come together once a week and talk about how we may do this and to encourage each other and strengthen each other. Lord, as always, if there's there's any of our family here right now who is feeling especially discouraged, I just ask that you give them a vision of Jesus on that horse and that, that he rides victory through their lives and through our lives and through this earth, even when it doesn't look like it, even when we don't feel like it. And we ask with one voice, Lord, even now, Lord Jesus, come. And we praise him for certainly he is the only one that deserves it. Because he is holy, holy, holy. In his name. Amen.